Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, our guest is Tony Gray, musician and owner of Tony Gray Bass Academy. And this week's Halloween horror recommendation from John is Apostle, available on Netflix. I'm Erica Berlin, Executive Director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. And I'm John Lines, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society. And I'm Mike Berlin, Director of Photography for Music Choice and Erica Berlin's husband. Our special guest today is Tony Gray, world-renowned yeah. bassist, performer, conductor. Tony has done a lot. He has a rich catalog of albums under his belt. Uh, Tony, I believe you are also the first Magpie to be on this podcast. That's yeah. a, that is that is a uh, that is a football re- reference or a soccer reference for Americans. Uh, Tony, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me a part of this. Pleasure to meet you all and good to see you all. Tony, I'm gonna we'll sort of get rush right into it and stuff like that because I think it's uh, personally I think their live music is sort or music right now in general is in an interesting place obviously with uh, with what's happening and can you talk to us a little bit from uh, the musicians' perspective right now with you know sort of uh, it's been the headlines a bunch as far as uh, what's been happening with venues and what's been going on with performers and how you've sort of continued to massage and create in an era where and we've had to socially distance. Yeah, it kind of came quick and uh, it was a bit of a disaster for everyone really because most of us rely on that touring schedule to kind of stay alive and feed our family and all that stuff. So it was kind of unbelievable because no one really knew and at the time it thought, oh, we can still do it. And then all of a sudden everything just stopped and all this all the scheduling for the rest of the year just got basically canceled. Things changed rapidly and thank God for the internet in a way that allowed us to continue playing and kind of be in touch and stay motivated. Because another thing about musicians is we're self-employed. So really when you don't have a gig, you lose a lot of mo- like motivation and momentum in your daily life. So I know a lot of cats were struggling to just kind of get up and practice and quite depressed and nervous about the future. A lot of people went in teaching, but then also realized they didn't have the facilities needed to do it. So the transition has been very tough, really. I mean, I'm fortunate that I've, I have the online school and online teaching is a passion of mine. I have been doing some projects, streaming projects. Uh, I did something for the Pittsburgh Chamber Society and doing some clinics and workshops and I've got a few things lined up. Um, so it's kind of slowly normalizing it in, in a sense of becoming more reliant and creative in the online world, you know, because everyone's in the same boat. So everyone's kind of pulling together to make something happen. I'm curious about your online teaching. So. I don't think you just come up with that because a pandemic strikes, right? So, so when did you start teaching online? How many students do you have? How many more students did you take on when COVID hit? I started teaching probably about maybe 10 years ago, 11 years ago. I was just touring around and I was finding that I was getting a lot of students would just kind of reach out to me message me somehow online and ask for lessons in hotels before gigs so i'll be in spain for say for example and still would be like students coming to my hotel room before and after the gigs and i was just, it was becoming really draining and exhausting even like the the extra money was really cool and it's nice to meet people and connect but i'm thinking all the time there must be an easy way to do this you know and then skype was kicking around so i started to do skype lessons but then i found myself 
kind of overcompensating because of the online experience and I, tend, I tended to kind of go on a bit too much. You know, the lessons would go on for like two or three hours. So then I realized that I should be able to kind of explain everything in like 10, 20 minutes for each subject. So then I started to think of the online possibilities. So I developed this. I locked myself away for like a week in some cottage in England somewhere and uh, just kind of dedicated my time like fully on just developing a blueprint for like an online curriculum for, for base education or whatever. And uh, then it just began. It just started. So I, I, I did that about eight years ago. And at the time, it wasn't, it wasn't really a thing. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I had that in place. So for now, when in, this, in these conditions, I already have the kind of formula laid out. My curriculum's already in place. I, I'm already used to teaching online and kind of conversing with students. And then that inspired me to teach at Merseyhurst. So I, I'm teaching at Merseyhurst now, just a, a class per semester where I had to write a curriculum. But again, it's already online. It's all like online based. So yes, I'm just really passionate about it. Tony, I've done a little bit of research here. And uh, so how would you say, what have you taken from uh, Berkeley and stuff like that? And I've heard you in other interviews sort of refer to your time uh, with the band Bliss as sort of its own form of its own type of education for you. How have you sort of taken that and like sort of put, brought that together in paying it forward to your students? Well, Berkeley was amazing. I have to say I was really lucky to go there. They more teach the dream of being a musician rather than the reality of being a musician. So you're kind of in your bubble while you're in college and um, you just tend to think everything's going to be good. Like if you're good with your classmates, if you're getting lots of jam sessions in, in school, you, you can kind of have that false sense of security that you're just going to slip into a, a big gig when you leave. I, I was lucky in a way that like a, a, a record company came to the school to do auditions for musicians. So I got the gig with Bliss and that was after two years there. And I realized kind of when I was on the road that how much I didn't know about how to play music in a realistic, in a real environment. Because at Berkeley, it's, I found myself focusing more on virtuoso things like technique and playing ridiculously fast and all that stuff. And then I realized when I got the pop gig that that was the last thing in the world they wanted to hear. So I found myself having to kind of go back <laughs> to music, like at the yeah. most fundamental level and learn like top 40 hits. I would just put on like album after album and just learn all the bass lines and copy all the bass lines. And I kind of crammed it in, did this gig, realized I had to deal with traveling, which was, seems like fun. But when you're under pressure and you've got to do TV shows and then you've got to do radio, Right after that, radio, then a gig, and then back to the hotel, wake up, do the same thing, repeat. Um, it's really draining and it can kind of fatigue you. And also the anxiety and the nerves on stage are very hard to handle as well. I learned a lot about that, and I didn't learn that at school. And, I, and then I went back to Berkeley after that gig finished. I went back and finished my two years. And again, I kind of got sucked back into the virtuosity, but I kind of had this awareness of what it was like outside of that environment. So my strategy changed completely and I started kind of getting through the lessons, but really focusing on what was going to happen next. So the, the concept of my school was to really kind of prepare you, structure your practice in a way that will help you in the real world. So whatever you practice, make sure you practice it creatively instead of academically. Because in a university or a college like Berkeley, it's very much kind of systematic. Like you learn a scale and then you might be quizzed on it later and you learn a certain technique to compose and then you're quizzed on it. But really, as you're learning each concept, you should be trying to apply it as creatively as possible to find your own voice. Because essentially, you should be able to play what you hear 
in your mind, not what you learned in a classroom, so to speak. And, you know, you go back to some, well, some of my favorite musicians like Michael Jackson, Prince, all them guys, David Bowie. I wonder if they ever studied that intensely in their life about theory of music. They just kind of had that's that. An, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Yeah. You know, huh. so it's like sometimes the more you know, the more intimidated you can get. And um, because then you have so many rules to think about and so many possibilities of how to be hip, you know, instead of just trusting yourself and putting it out there. Um, so I learned that. And uh, the more students I started to get, the more I started to realize that everyone had the same issues, the same fears, the same anxieties, fear of being judged, fear of success in a way, how to get a gig, not thinking they're good enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I became more focused on the mindset of the musician and how to kind of help them, whatever their environment, to kind of practice in a way that's going to make them useful in whatever field they land themselves in. It's interesting. I see like uh, in your story, a lot of parallels. We, we talk on here a lot about, you know, like, like film school or not film school, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's kind of like a book smart, street smarts thing where it's like, um, you know, there's some people that went to film school and they're kind of waiting around for the right moment to follow all the rules to make their first movie instead of just doing it, you know? <laughs> you got, it's, it's like the saying that I heard, like it's ready, fire, aim. You know, you get yourself ready, you fire it out there and then you refine it and then you re-aim everything, you know? But you can't know that until you get it out there. And a lot of artists, procrastination is, it has to be perfect before anyone can see it. But really, it's the imperfections that help you find you. But Berkeley and film school alike, I'm sure the biggest connections are the students because they all, they all want the same thing. They're all trying to get the same thing. They might not all get there, but you know, there's so much energy going for it. And the more people you can meet and the less competitive you are, and the more you involve yourself and support others and what they're like, just because you're not called for the gig doesn't mean you shouldn't show up for the gig and wave your flag for them, you know. Um, and that comes back around because a lot of my gigs have come from students. So it must have been interesting for you to have sort of that experience, uh, Berkeley to Bliss and then back to Berkeley. And then you go on the road with uh, Hiromi and there, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, you guys met each other at Berkeley. Yeah. I met her when I came, this, the next, the second batch of lessons I took, uh, I met Hiromi, she was in one of my classes. So, so that virtuoso side of things, did you, like, you're coming from now this sort of, this different perspective of it, did you have to try to be like, guy, like, did you try to sort of give, share a little bit of your experience with them, and that, and like your perspective? Well, I think... You have to just lead by example in a way, you know, I mean, I'm still learning. I've still got a lot of things to learn and I'm inspired by so many students who were at school at that time and look back and think how great they were. And so I think everyone has their own journey and everyone will get where they're wanting to be as long as you're ready to take the hits and still come back because you get real life feedback from whoever you're working with because nobody wants to deal with it, you know? So a lot of times on gigs, I will be told you're too loud you're playing too many notes, shit in funky, listen to this, listen to that. And I was, I was lucky in a way to kind of have like tough band leaders like that my, throughout my whole journey. Even the pop band that I perceived to be so easy compared to what I was into, uh, I would be playing some Beatles tune and I would be authoritatively hitting the wrong note. And then all of a sudden I would get a guitar pick f flicked off my face. And, uh, and that was like constant. Every time I made a mistake, it was like flick of the pick right in my face. 
<laughs> and there was always comments like, I thought you were supposed to be a jazz musician. We hired these jazz musicians because it was so great. And then there was a lot of kind of almost resentment. So because I didn't take the music as seriously as I should have done. And there is a lot of complexity and beauty in the most simple things. And it's very easy when you have facility to kind of overdo it. Well, there's a saying in classical where it's just like, anybody can play Bach, but not everybody can play Bach well. And Exactly, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Who are you playing for? You know, like, are you playing right. for yourself? Or are you playing for the music? I learned that you have to be a slave for the music. And if you're not into it, you shouldn't do it. Fair. It reflects. And then you meet people on the way and they see you being an asshole and they see you not paying attention <laughs> and they see you taking it for granted. And it's a small world, man. Every genre, every record label, every guy is all connected and they all talk. Well, you know, not to overstep here. And I, and it has, to, it had to be a sort of a, um, an added burden on some respect because you do come from a family of, uh, you know, with your, with your uncle, John uh, McLaughlin. Uh, and he is very well known and celebrated in sort of that jazz fusion audience. And I mean, you're, you're talking about a legend in the game and stuff like that. And I, I know, I, I know that you've been on some of his, his albums in the last few years and stuff like that. And, uh, but like, that had to be like an unexpected sort of pressure that came with it. It was, it was, uh, it was the most amazing and stressful realization ever, to be honest, because there was a lot of expectation from other students. There was a lot of expectation from myself. There was a lot of expectation from him and I felt from my family and uh, it's big shoes to kind of fill, you know, and he helped me a lot. He helped me kind of come to America he helped me get my first bass and uh, he did a lot for me, you know, and uh, I want to make him proud. And he's, um, he's not shy in speaking the truth, his truth. And so sometimes I, I would remember I would be working all night on a tune to, to play for him. And then I would play for him and he was so disappointed and I expect so much more in this and that. And it's really tough, man. And, uh, and when I went to the Bliss Band, there was some frowns like what what are you doing but for me just where i was at it was like i needed to get my ass kicked in an environment that i could kind of work out you know easier than some of the other things because if i'd gone straight on the road with john mclaughlin i would have been fried alive and i would have yeah. probably never had another gig again so everything for a reason really but yeah tough teachers tough love um and that's kind of what it take sometimes you know to kind of hear the things that hurt you the most but then for you to look within and really kind of assess where you're at and also learning to accept where you're at and just being able to use whatever you have to its maximum like always kind of realizing your current potential not beat yourself up and just keep keep at it trust the process you know hence keep your dreams bigger than your fears uh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Cause I know that's a saying for you and uh, that's some, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. That's wow. Moving forward a little bit um, when you were younger and you were doing DJ uh, you were in a, uh, a difficult situation with a car accident. And um, I think this is the genesis of you becoming a bass player uh, where you had a, an injury, a pretty significant injury in your back. And uh, I, you got to practicing. And uh, there, I can't help but feel like with right now, with, you know, sort of being almost quarantined at a young age and being sort of forced to sit down and pick a discipline, uh, do you see any parallels to that to like what's happening right now with maybe other um, other people who might find themselves in a similar situation right now as we are socially distancing and, you know, being forced to stay home? 
I learned a long time ago. Well, I'm still learning. Um, but when I was in school, like as a kid, like in middle school and high school, the teachers always said I always got bad grades, terrible grades. And the teacher always said, yes, potential, but he's not focused. He's always looking out the window. He's not focused. Show more effort, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, had, this, I had the same problem. <laughs> it's, I had the same problem. It's, I, I relate to this. <laughs> so. I, I thought at the time, though, my perception at the time was I was making good effort and I, was, I seemed to be into what I was doing at the time. But then when I got the grade back, it was just red lines everywhere. So um, that kind of not having that discipline as, as a young child, like I have a 12 year old now and watching him kind of study online school and all that. It's so easy to kind of not make yourself accountable and kind of drift off and not do the work or pay attention and make silly mistakes on tests and all that. Um, but that kind of not having that discipline hurt me when I left school because I was just drifting around, not having any direction, no focus. Then I got into DJing, which was my focus, but it was not very fruitful, you know what I mean? It, it would just end up being like 20 kids, half of them who i never met before in my life, sitting in my bedroom at my mom's house, while I would just mix on records and all that, and it was great for a minute. And, uh, but then so I- how, how old were you, Tony? Sorry to jump like in. 16, 15, 16. I left school when I was 15. So 16, 15, 16. It was this house full of kids every day in my house. So it was house party, house party DJ. All, all the time. It wasn't like a rowdy party. It was just loads of kids in, in one bedroom with me just on my decks or whatever. And my mom just sitting downstairs, not having a clue what was going on, you know? <laughs> so uh, good times. But um, I quickly realized that wasn't getting anywhere with it and um so i decided to join the army and then um but before i joined the army i wanted to put on weight because i was so skinny and uh not looking the best so i got a job at a chinese restaurant just washing dishes because i knew they'd feed me at the end of the night so i was just eating as much like fried rice as i could and i would i would always be the first guy to take the trash out because i could do pull-ups on the on the uh where the trash cans are there was like a, a thing i could do a few pull-ups and I got into this mindset of like determined to like become a stronger person, you know? So then I joined the army and I was like, okay, I got this. I'm disciplined. I feel good about myself. I'm confident. And then I broke my back and, and that's when it all kind of went. So I was back to square one again, but I was determined to not kind of slip again. And it was by chance that I got the base. Someone gave me a base and, um, I just started practicing 12 hours a day. I became like super obsessed with it. And then Why it, the bass? I don't know. Just my stepdad brought it home one day from work. He just said, I picked this up from a secondhand store. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and learn an instrument. So I just started learning it. And then within- I'm assuming year, it wasn't a six string either. No, it was just a four string. Okay. But I didn't know really what it was. So I didn't really know what the practice, what, whatever. I went for a lesson. I was just over my head. So then I just started buying boots from the local music store and just got myself into it. And then a friend's, a friend's dad was a bass player. So he taught me a bit. And then uh, within a year, I was in America. It was like never even a dream, you know? It just happened. So That's fast. That's really fast. I was under so much pressure. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I think John sometimes thought 
that I've been playing for years. And it was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, he's had an injury. Let's help him go to America and blah, blah, blah. I don't think he had a clue that I had never played before in my life. So uh, <laughs> he was sending me all these tapes of, like, amazing bass players like Jaco Pastorius. And I honestly didn't know who any of them were. Um, so really, that, that was my first introduction. Um, and just because I kept at it and kept at it and kept at it, and uh, I kept sending them tapes. And my dad said, oh, you should send him a tape. Are you playing? So I sent him a tape. And he was like, okay, let's go to America, man. So wow. That's are. incredible. Yeah. It's weird. That's incredible. It's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> so so in the so in the past uh so in the past few months, as I said, I wanted to go back a little bit and come forward with, you know, now this time. Oh have you been working on any projects? What what have you do what have you been doing to occupy your time? Well, yeah, so I think it's important at this time, especially when you're self-employed, you've got to be self-motivated. And the best way for me to stay motivated is to give myself a schedule. Like I don't necessarily have to, it doesn't have to be like nine to five. It could be like 10 to whenever or seven to whenever. As long as I get the work that I've set myself aside as a priority done a day, then I feel accomplished. And if I feel accomplished, I'm motivated to kind of progress and all that. So I do four hours practice a day. And then I spend the rest of my time writing music or writing new curriculum. Like I said, I'm working for Mercyhurst right now. So I'm writing the curriculum for one of their classes. So that's kept me busy and creative. I'm going to refilm all of my academy stuff. because I just moved to his new place, got all my studio set up. So I'm going to refilm everything. So yeah, so the, be the, best thing I, the best thing for me was to just make sure I got as much of my priority work done a, a day as possible, but also not put myself under a the pressure of having to be from this time to this time, you know, I, I want to be able to breathe, but as, uh, as long as I get it done and then I, I develop a sense of guilt if I don't get it done. And you have been playing out a little bit. I think we went to altered state a few weeks ago and we checked out bases loaded. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Steve Trahosky, he's been, he's been good, man. He's been um, keeping, every, trying to keep everyone gigs. He's been trying to find ways of like getting his work, whether it be streaming at his gallery or altered state, putting these events on, trying to keep it interesting. We did the jazz festival, the blues, jazz and blues festival. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, he, he seems to get gigs somehow. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how he does it, but he does. Yeah, I watched you guys on uh, Facebook. What you were doing, like at Art Lore Studios, maybe or something like a Facebook Live. Just like oh yeah, it was for the last Eric, tribute to Eric Brewer. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, thank you, man. It was fun. How long have you been in Erie? How have you seen the community like come together, adapt? Uh, you know, is there is there a pretty good music community here in Erie these days? Yeah. I mean, Erie is really incredible, man. It's like very supportive community. Um, there are a lot of artists, a lot of creative people like yourself here, um, a lot of musicians, a lot of dreamers. And uh, there's a good crowd here, man. Like people support it. People come out. You know, you all see the same faces. And they're, they're, as you know, there are quite a few venues and places to play. Not as much as there used to be, but there's good crowds everywhere. Everywhere has their place, you know, their audience. So I find eerie amazing for that i really do i think it's an incredibly supportive community what's your i guess wish how would you like to see eerie in the music community come out on the other side of this have you kind of thought about um the future future endeavors i think i'd like to see more education for musician like creative education here um because like there's a lot of musicians everyone goes round and round in the circle there must be a way of like, you know, as I said, the, the community is supportive here, but I think that we could be more collective. You know, I think we could collaborate more together, be open to learn from each other, 
I was saying before, you know, like sometimes to come out, like there's a good community for, for people supporting music here, but the musicians don't tend to go to other musicians' gigs so much. I don't know if you find that in your world, but you know, musicians just tend to go out when they have a gig. You know, I'm guilty of it too, um, but I think we could all support each other a bit more, whether we're involved or not, because it all comes full circle. I'd like to see more events where there's a, like a, a Jazz, like the jazz festival where there's a string of bands playing on a yeah. festival and maybe like a jam session at the end so everyone can kind of come together and celebrate um i would like to see more of that yeah i don't know if it's a eerie you know i'm i'm just from here so i don't know if it's just an eerie thing or not but for sure the longest time when like erica and i were starting out with the film society many moons ago uh, all the all of the filmmakers were like on islands it was very siloed very siloed yeah. yeah. And I feel like that is, is really starting to change, like in the last maybe, I don't know, five years or mm -hmm. something, Erica. Yeah. Like, I feel like that community is starting to build. I don't, I don't know if that's an eerie thing or an artist. I think it's actually an artist thing, uh, not to get too much of the weeds and stuff like that, but we're uh, working on a side project right now and have spoken not to give, I won't say names or anything like that, but I was informed that this is a bit of a situation with the dancing community as well. And that, you know, sometimes they are all aware of each other, but they don't necessarily, uh, and you know, they support from a distance, but don't always show up for each other. And it's sometimes, uh, it's sort of like a weird that goes along and I'm not I'm not exactly sure why that's the case we're a small enough town right we should be able to with effort it's here, force, it's just, force yeah. that around. You, you either don't want to see somebody do something that you maybe can't do or you don't want to see or when you do see somebody somebody you have the tendency of going oh I could do that you I, know I think I think that's it's all it about too, you man. isn't it it's all about it's yeah all about, <laughs> it's that artistic ego that, that uh, everyone has to have, you know, have struck for them. <laughs> I think with the film community, it took, I think what the film society and the, what the film office did was say, hey, everyone come together. I mean, it took going out and saying, we need to get together to support each other. And you can't do what you want to do really well on an island because you can't do it all. You can write it and you can stand behind a camera but you literally cannot go over there and hold your boom by yourself and you can't stand there and hold a light by like you can't just like you can't make a band and play all the instruments out i mean you can if you make people it all, have tried. you know people have tried <laughs> people have tried but you really can't make that experience all by yourself and i think that um you do have to you, you have to come out for each other uh, and you have to make an effort to do that. So it creates reciprocity, you know. Like yes. When you help somebody, they want to help you. It's like it's human nature, right? Yeah. You show an interest in somebody else, they want to tell you everything. They'll tell you all yeah. the all the secrets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, I'm I'm really curious about the Base Academy. Like when you first told me about it, I was like, man, that's a great idea. I'm curious, like. You know, what have you learned through that process and how has that endeavor kind of changed over time? I, I know you, you know, you film yourself, so you kind of had to learn that skill as well. You're, you know, you're kind of like a YouTuber without being on YouTube, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, like, you know, for creative entrepreneurs that should be taking advantage of something like that during our situation when we're in forced isolation and now's the time really right to, yeah if you want to try something now's the time to do it what have what have you kind of learned and how have you adapted along the way well i've learned and i did 
think about this first, but even then, even in hindsight, I'm like, I could have done more is have a blueprint of what you want to do before you do it. Like, don't just dive in without knowing what's next step. So for me, I got into mind mapping. Like, um, this guy, I know but there's a guy called Barry Map. He's like, check, him out, check him out. I've heard of this before, actually. I, I, wow. Uh, that's, and you're, so you're applying that to the academy. For everything I do, really. What I learned was, for me, I can't speak for everybody, but I could only hold so many critical thoughts in my mind at once. So I'll stop procrastinating, start ruminating, stop obsessing over things. But when I found this mind mapping system, it was basically chunking, like dumping ideas down on paper, like your big picture, and then starting to write, like, okay, so for example, I'm winging this, right? So you could just say, all right, I want to bake a cake, right? So you got your cake, and then you, okay, what all goes into baking a cake? So you got the cake, you don't need to think about the cake anymore, you're doing it. So then you go, okay, ingredients. So then you little line off ingredients. Then you've got like uh, time. So then you get into your schedule. So, so then you can kind of really focus and micromanage your time. Uh, ingredients, okay, what do I need? Flour, this, that, this, that, that. And then recipe, okay, this, 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 this. And then you, as you dump these thoughts out, it just kind of leads to another thought, another thought, another thought. And it just kind of expands like a tree almost. And then you can get super creative, super focused. So for me, with the Academy... Like on the technical side of it, what did I need? I needed a computer, I needed a camera, video camera, I needed uh, lighting, I needed furniture, I needed this gear, that gear, this gear. How can I buy it? What's the budget? Blah, blah, blah. Um, then you get into the website. I need a website. Okay, now I need a web developer. I need a, a curriculum. Okay, curriculum. I get into the curriculum now. Okay, the curriculum, chapter one. Okay, what does this mean? Okay, each lesson must have a, a, a goal, a, a journey to a goal, and then a creative outlet at the end. So that so I became super focused on like exactly how I wanted to be, wanted to be presented and knowing exactly my environment and what was required, the aesthetics, you know, what the colors I want to have. So the more things you put down, the more space in your mind to be really detailed about those things, you know? And um, so the, I learned that knowing what you want before you try is important and taking your time to really kind of manifest that and then just start putting forth action. Do you apply the same philosophy to your songwriting? Sometimes, sometimes I'll get like, a, for example, I'll give a, a song a name and then from that name, I can envision like temperature, uh, color, um, tempo, you know, like all the things I might, I can all, almost make an ingredient that they're the things I'm going for just based on this name, based on the thought that I had. So now I can become really intricate and maybe just subconsciously because I've put it out there that my music will maybe reflect more of what I was going for. And just instead of just sitting down, writing a piece of music. That's interesting. I mean, not to put you on the spot or anything, but is there a a tune that comes to mind that, you know, and we could play maybe a little sample in the podcast of, you know, the origins of it and kind of how you got from A to Z. I know I'm putting you, I'm putting you on the spot. I know, yeah, a couple of songs. Well, I did an album called Unknown Angels, which was a really amazing experience for me. Um, and I wanted to create a bio of kind of where I'd, what I'd come through spiritually, if you like. Um, so there's a song called Say What You Mean. You know, like I was trying to understand communication. 
so I started to, I wrote that name down and I was like thinking then so so just writing that name down would help me kind of when I go about my business because what I like to do is I like to put things out there then totally forget about them and then like hours later or days later something will come into my head like a, like I planted the seed and now something came so then I'll start about thinking scenarios and I'll pick up my dictaphone and I'll start telling me myself a story or a circumstance of why this and then when I sit down I'm kind of like trying to reflect so I want the music to be calm and I want to but also kind of have a, a an underlying of, of frustration but somehow infusing them together so I did that with two time signatures at the same time, but it's also very peaceful, so you would not necessarily know. But at the same time, I'm chanting my message. So so that that's an example. Oh, the song Unknown Angels was about my car crash. So again, I, I wrote the name Unknown Angels, and I wanted to dedicate it to um, this boy, actually, this young boy who... Well, there's two boys, actually. Two, one boy who was in the car with me um, who got injured, but fortunately was okay and another guy seven, 17 year old guy would come and visit me in hospital he was a friend of my friend who crashed the car and he would just come and read me the newspaper every day like the football scores the football stories this that i never met him before and um so he would come to sit by my hospital bed every day and talk to me and whatever but then he died like he went to pick up his sister from ballet one night and on the way home he kind of crashed his car in a sim on the same bend of the road as where we crashed our car and there's actually like a, um, a tribute to him like a little shrine on the side of the road and you can see across the road where the hedge was where we went through we fell off a 30-foot embankment he spinned and went on the other side of the road and had a head-on collision and died immediately but you know the strange thing is is he was a soccer player and he wanted to be a soccer coach and he was offered a full scholarship to come and study in america to be a soccer coach and he was telling me all about this stuff and then after my accident i had this tremendous amount of guilt that he wouldn't have been in that situation if he hadn't come to see me and he didn't even know who i was he was just doing out of the kind of his kindness of his heart and then i when i got the scholarship to america i had this like determination to kind of pay homage to him by doing well um and that's so that was my story behind the song but i already had this story before i even wrote the song so wow. again it was maybe subconsciously the delivery was trying to be respectful of him but yeah wow. it's it was an unbelievable situation and and you know there was a little boy as well and i don't really remember what was real and what wasn't real in that situation so like when I was in the crash, like I was laid in a field and I knew there was something wrong with my back. And for some reason, I remember this little kid sitting beside me and holding my hand. And uh, I don't know if that was real or not, but um, I think the farmer, there was a farmer that came running down because he must have heard the crash. And from what I remember, some farmer was running down and he must have had a child with him and they were taking care of the other people in the car and this kid sitting there next to me. And I remember that. I don't, I don't know. So I have all these like weird flashbacks from that situation and I don't know what it was, but it was certainly um, kind of a, kept me going, kept me alive. And there was a similar story with the ambulance drivers too, because they were shouting at me and yelling at me in the ambulance and they were like 
who are you? What's your name? Where you come from? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. Answer me. Blah, blah. And like yelling at me like this. And then years and years later, like you won't believe this. My mom owned a bed and breakfast in the Isle of Skye. It's like in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. She, had, she was fed up with the world. So she just wanted to be there with her husband and kind of switch off from society. So she would get a lot of backpackers from all over the world. And one time there was these couple, this man and wife came to visit. Then they were talking and she's like, oh, what do you do? And they say, oh, we're ambulance drivers. And then she was telling them about me and my story. And it just so happened that they were the ambulance drivers. And I never ever got a chance to say thank you because I didn't know who they were. So they actually came to my mom's place and met them like maybe 13 years after. You In know? the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. Scotland. Things like that make me think like, I don't think it's destiny or this or that or this. I just think that's life. You know what I mean? And sometimes you can put the dots together and it's a small world and remarkable things happen. But I, re I just remember those moments and always remind me of like okay i gotta do well you know i'm here i gotta do well it always reminds me when i'm feeling lazy or depressed no matter what i'm feeling i gotta keep going keep trying keep finding a different way and, and that's kind of where i'm at you don't take it for granted i try not to you know i mean i do sometimes but i sharp remind myself of th those experiences to help me get back on track it's interesting i mean Wow. A lot of what I, I haven't um, read his stuff for a while, but are you familiar with David Lynch, the filmmaker, David Lynch? Yeah. yeah. So he talks about like um, catching the big fish and something like, um, you know, if you only stay in shallow water, you can only get little fish, but you have to really go deep. Um, so what you're talking about, you know, when, when something comes in, you know, like an idea comes in or something and you get it down, I, there's, there's some relationship that I don't know if, you know, if it's just naturally what works for you, but he does like a lot of transcendental meditation, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with it. I mean, I think the mind is like so powerful and it's so easy to doubt yourself. It's so easy to kind of fall into the pity me scenario, but we're kind of rugged creatures, you know, we can take a lot. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes you get thrown into a situation and you don't know what you're made of, really. And you got to remind yourself of those moments when you feel so fragile over like spilt milk. You know, you got to you got to remind yourself that like you are tough, you can't get through it. And I learned because I, I suffered from major anxiety when I first went to America and I would be sick. I was always sick, always like so drained and tired. And and I kind of got used to it and I got used to the cycle. I was like, OK, in four days, I'm going to be good. So I would just wow. surround myself with like good things for four days and kind of take it easy on myself and just rest and all that. And then four days went by and then I'll be back on my path. But so it's important to re remember that everything's a wave, like everything's a cycle. Like, you know, it always comes back around and you've just got to try to make the most of that wave that you're on because it's going to crash. And in the crash, if you have a schedule, you, at least you're preparing for the wave so you can maximize it when it, when it happens good advice man it sounds like really good covid advice too it does sound like it, it is good, true. good life it's good life advice i mean i'm 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 talking a good a good game like but it's tough but that's where the truth is somewhere yeah man wow yeah i want to light it up for a for a second here this is technically film grain and so we talk movies a lot here uh and i want to just sort of get your two cents is there a film soundtrack like that you love and that you would recommend for the listening audience at home and uh and have you ever i and i couldn't find it but have you ever scored a film or and would you ever be interested in doing something like that i would love to do that 
I had a couple of opportunities in Japan. Uh, I did some commercial stuff like TV commercials. I've done some jingles for various projects for people. I do love it because I, I, I think visually when I write, I like to kind of leave the interpretation up to the listener of where they, you know, like not box you in to a specific emotion or whatever. But um, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to get more into that. Um, music film scores. Uh, I love John Williams stuff. I love um, Schindler's List. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I don't know. It's tough. There's um, like Hans Zimmer stuff. Yeah. Hans Zimmer. Big. Sure. You're going for the yeah. big epic. Yeah, epic man. But a yeah. lot of dynamic emotion. I love uh, this guy called Ryuichi Sakamoto. He did um, The Last Emperor. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he did the music for that. He's my idol, actually. He's like my favorite. Of oh, all of them. Cool. Um, check him out man he's so beautiful man uh, very simple like i said he kind of lets you decide of how you want to interpret it so you're not just like forced into a corner you see i love yeah i know and i know what you're putting out there too because like sometimes and even with the even with the composers who i enjoy it, it's amazing the power particularly in film soundtracks the power of the manipulation of the music. <laughs> yeah for sure so, oh now i'm supposed to feel sad oh okay right, right. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Well, it's one of the great things about there's a not to get too off the beaten path here, but uh, there was the film Nightcrawler, and what they and we were, we went to TIFF and we saw the Q and A, and they yeah. deliberately were playing. They had scored the film in opposite way emotionally from what you're supposed from what was happening because it was and it was manipulating the way that you viewed the movie, and it was in it was such when when they that got pointed out that was like such a head trip because. <laughs> Here's this character coming unhinged, and they're playing hero music for him. And <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You know, James Taylor's good like that. Like, he had a song called um, Mean Old Man. Are you familiar with it? And it's a very ironic song. Well, you don't know what's ironic? Well, actually, you do know what's ironic, because he's singing about how much of a jerk he was, how mean he was, how the, he wouldn't give the kids his ball, their ball back. He was always nasty, and no one liked him, and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but the song's so upbeat and happy. But at the very end of the song, like his final phrase is something along the lines of, now everyone loves me, I'm a golden retriever puppy dog. So we were talking about reincarnation. <laughs> so he's actually very jolly and happy, but he's telling the story of his past life, which is wow. me. It's, it's, it's really interesting, that stuff. But it is the power of music. And sometimes when there's irony in there, it's kind of a surprise. Mm -hmm. But it can be, like you said, in, in the movie you were talking about. Where it's Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, yeah. Nightcrawler. So is it, have you heard of the McGurk technique? No. no, no. What's that? It's like, I'm sure you have. It's basically when somebody says the same word, but their lips do different things. And it can give you the perception of like hearing it differently. Like there's a guy that says bar, like with a B, bar, bar. And then the far. So the videos showing them make the far sound with the teeth. Uh -huh. but still saying the word bar, but you hear it as far. And then when you flip the video around and you look at it, it's the same. It's always opposite, but it's always the same audio. Whoa. So the perception of like what you see and what you hear can sometimes trick the mind, which is also interesting. I'm yeah. YouTube this. It's really fascinating and it, it blow your mind. Because um, I think, I, I wonder if it happens in, in film, in, in doing filming, like actors, I don't know how that, the way the mind perceives things can be tricked sometimes, maybe through music um, or through the way they speak. I, I don't know, check it out. 
I mean, well, it definitely all of- happens when you're watching CBS Sunday night movies uh, because you don't change the channel after 60 minutes and they're showing Ferris Bueller's Day Off and they're editing out words. So you're not allowed to say up your butt. You can say in your butt, but you can't say up your butt. So you're watching them say, She's <laughs> no, right. I'm not yeah, kidding. This, this I'm not kidding. Yeah. So you're watching them cut out up the butt, but you, <laughs> they're saying in the butt. I couldn't tell you, but the McGurk thing probably did come into play there. Um, unless, you know, unless you know that, and then it kind that of- That probably <laughs> does come into play, I think. <laughs> like, awesome. brings way more attention to it than they wanted that's that's bizarre yeah us us in our uh i don't know in america here what's sorry what's about, i'm sorry i had to bring that up no I'm no sorry. i mean it's like the first thing i thought of the seven <laughs> words you can't say on television that whole thing. yeah <laughs> why, why can't you say up your butt but yeah exactly what the hell's i don't the know i don't know call cbs <laughs> like a panel there must be like a, some kind of panel that decides these things in or up <laughs> can't, can't say up you can say in but you can't oh, say up I vote for up <laughs> I think I'd vote for up actually yeah Yeah. oh man well t- oh, Tony I don't know how to segue from that <laughs> but this has been uh, this has been great man thank you yeah. so much for, for spending some time with us hanging out of course how's your movie going man <laughs> oh uh yeah it's it's going it's it's playing playing in the, the world i love the poster behind man that's awesome thanks dude yeah thank you so much very can't cool. wait for you to see it oh I, you've you've seen you've I, seen it I, I need to see it in its full glory man. yeah you get, you get yes it. thank you thanks tony so much man. oh thank you guys Cheers. Uh, this week's film was a, a nice family uh <laughs> g-rated film called apostle Uh, it's available on netflix so if you think of early 1900s dirty dingy gruesome (laughs) religious cult uh you you are in the you're in the right headspace so our lead actor is played by dan stevens he plays thomas and he's charged with uh his father to rescue his sister who is on a remote island, which is uh, run by a religious cult. And he's he needs to infiltrate, not to announce himself, um, find, find his sister before paying anyone. Also, so Dan Stevens, he, he has some serious drug issues in, in the movie. Like he's coming from a very dark place. You, you get that right off. He's got, you know, like permanent blood crusted into his fingernails um you know he's he's just having a rough go at it it also stars uh lucy boynton who is in sing street which she's amazing and sing street she's also in bohemian rhapsody and of course michael sheen uh, who plays great michael sheen great michael sheen plays malcolm uh who is the person who talks to he refers to the goddess on the island who beckoned him um, and some other stowaways, his brothers, uh, to this island. So they wanted to start, uh, you know, a familiar story. They wanted to start a, a, their own community where everyone would be equal and free. No wars, no taxes. Sounds like a paradise. 
Sounds like what what could go wrong? Sounds like Christopher Columbus. Exactly. This is good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> so um it's directed by Gareth Evans, which is the reason I was drawn to the film because um I had seen his early film, uh, what's it called? I think Morant Morantu. Uh correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, if you know, but uh he directed, of course, The Raid and The Raid 2, um, which were real game changers in the early 2010s for their unrelenting, hardcore, bone-crunching, intense. I'm just going to say this. If you haven't seen The Raid films, just movies. go see go The Raid films. It, No matter how you feel about violence and its gratuitous nature, like... This it, both of them are excellent, excellent it's, filmmaking at so like a invented, high, high level. So intense. I remember Mike seeing the first raid with you in the theater, and we were both just like, "Oh my god!" Like what I appreciate about Garrick as a director and a storyteller is this is somebody who really understands the mechanics of filmmaking. Yeah. and how to do it well the one one of the things that immediately jumped out at me uh with the apostle and it sort of been on my radar it's like oh, i'm gonna get around to that and then over time sometimes as that happens with the streaming films like it's like you just for, sort of get the first from pretty much from the first frame the opening frame it's a it's a it's a gorgeous film yeah. it's a really really well shot film and uh and yeah. he is just there's something to be said for uh he is just a he is an excellent mechanic of a filmmaker. Yeah. And so when he, he made this, you know, this film got, a, I mean, it premiered at Fantasia. Um, it got some mixed reviews when it came out because I think, you know, people maybe understandably, you know, he's done just wall to wall action movies, but then this kind of starts off as a bit of a slow burn, right? It's, it's character, it's about the aesthetic, about the setting. I thought it was gonna be a so sort of a suspense thriller, to be honest. I was like, I, I said to Eric at one point, I was just like, I was like, actually I don't think this is a horror movie. And then and then, then it like, turns, nope, it turns it's into a horror, horror movie. <laughs> and when it does turn, I mean, you know, you get he gives you like a couple early things right on. So like um, Thomas has to get on this boat, of course, to get to the island and they like hit some a rough patch and like a, a what is it a sheep or something falls into his lap oh yeah and he's surrounded by all these yeah all these people that you think are you know these nice religious folk uh getting a ride to the island with him and he's holding it and he's it's like the sweetest moment and the one guy just grabs it out of his hands and just whips it down to the other end and it's like head bangs off and it goes into the water and he says, um, only she decides whether to give or take. We do not intervene. And you kind of just know that, okay, you get a little unsettled, like, from, from that point forward. And, you know, like Midsommar and Wicker Man and, like, the, these other films that, I mean, I, I'm kind of drawn to, like, religious cult stuff like that. I, I don't know. It's just kind of fascinating. But you just get into the the community and you learn the inner workings and you see that you know martin sheen's character he's he's the leader right and he's telling everyone in his congregation everyone's following him very closely but you see in the background you know there's this building that there's a body kind of <laughs> drug into while everybody's kind of enjoying their time in the church and you see like 
you get little hints about the rules of the community and what you're not allowed to do. And of course, you know, sex comes into it. And um, yeah, it gets uh, really dirty and gritty. And so anyways, uh, he, he finds his sister. Um, there's this building dread through the whole thing. He finds this, um, like, uh, these, uh, what are they called? Like a tunnel system. And then under the tunnel system is like the, the other <laughs> tunnel system that he finds himself in at one point, which is extremely, uh, gross. It's the sewage system. It's, it's by the, the way, we, we, we need to clarify that. And that's a really it's important detail. Sewage. It's the bloody sewage. It's a it's very deep and very uh yeah, it's very busy down there. And there's there's some surprises that he finds down there. I mean, we won't spoil it, but um I thought we spoiled these. It, oh, well, this one's not too old. This I one's don't newer. This one's oh, a little yeah. newer. We, I we mean, spoil I... the skull. We can spoil <laughs> the skull, but we can't spoil a fossil. Got it. This, well, well, I think I already from, did. Like, the 50s. I think that there's uh, in the film, and, and there's like having had it's some time royalty like, now, free sort of... already. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> okay. Sorry. Having some having had some time to sort of process it, there's actually something really interesting happening in the script because it's like here is this community ultimately trying to get away and have its have its freedom and uh, be be exempt from the religious persecution that we know that was happening up and down uh, in England and, and, and in Britain. Uh, and he, Dan Stevens' character, was a priest who uh, went over and did mission work in, um, in I believe it's either China. Was it, Ch Ch was it China Peking, or China? Peking. Okay. Yes, mm -hmm. he does. You're right. It says Peking. And for those who are aware and familiar with the history, um, once the, the missions got over there and started getting established and start to try to get themselves more uh rooted into the system and the culture there uh they were met with violent resistance and so it's sort of interesting to have these two stories and it's what it's one of the things one of the mechanics of the film that i think makes it work so well because it's just like like what steven's character wanted to sort of you know, sort of send the message, the message of God and stuff like that. He's experienced that persecution. So you would think that he would be able to uh, sort of identify and sort of connect to this community. And I think they have a little bit of that going on, but he is, his character is so far gone and so far broken that yeah. he can't sort of come back to it. Yeah. Broken. That's a, that's a good word for sure for his character. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you see kind of in a similar way to like the witch, where you know when you're in isolation yeah it's great um but once you know the if the crops fail or you know the animals aren't uh, reproducing anymore i mean you can get real fucked real real fast out on an island by yourself she persecutes them for their christianity they head out there right they're like we're gonna have this nice egalitarian christian and she's like oh no you serve me I'm the one in charge. You're not yeah, going to be I mean, Christian the, anymore. The but she's interesting. And I don't know if it's just me because, you know, I'm always in this kind of climate change headspace now. But I thought kind of the 
what she symbolizes and like the flora and the fauna and the perversion and exploitation of man i i thought might be might be a, a part of all this too in the end she's too, she, that character the, the that spirit if you will she turns into something of a sympathetic mm -hmm. character because of uh what was it the uh, the one brother quinn and stuff like that and just like his perversion of their ideals and how he tries to sort of uh force what he thinks is right upon not just the rest of the sect mm -hmm. but on her as well and the land yeah uh, because he just because he sort of becomes uh you know absolute power corrupts absolutely and he goes for the power grab yeah. and uh the, I, there's a for your horror for uh horror man there's a there's a lot going on yeah the second half so we were talking erica erica missed the second half the second half of the movie i mean there's a whole section about releasing a spirit from somebody that is it's not it's one of those like mike when you're talking about like mastery of the craft it's not even so much what they're showing but it's the reaction shots you know like the whole thing about fight club when they're beating the shit out of um you know brad pitt and in the basement it's not so much about his face turning into a bloody pulp it's the cutaways to like the audience watching yeah well like yeah and it's like the slow motion like the sort of the wincing away and stuff like yeah and showing yeah. how these machines work before you see them actually working on a human oh, they like said it all i think i saw that in the trailer okay. i think i know what you're talking about i did see a machine in the trailer and someone on a machine yeah there's there's a couple there's, there's a couple there's a couple, couple, there's a couple machines, machines it turns out <laughs> but, but then mike i totally got like a silent hill pyramid pyramid head man vibe from the one guy that i think erica referenced with that's he's just tied up in the original wicker man yeah. <laughs> yes i saw him i saw him the guys and like so then he walks along and the the flowers kind of come out around him yeah and she's she's got the wood that right. grows out from basically her. you feed her and then she kind of like you know brings things back back to health nature mm -hmm. like flowers and everything that's why mm -hmm. i was like mm -hmm. i don't know if it's like a fauna or a floor but, but if you got it like her natural diet if you will was not necessarily blood mm -hmm. remember that was something that was uh was attempted out of desperation and because it worked one time they continued to i and i can't help but feel that there's a little bit of like, like a fossil fuel type of almost oh, idea okay. or mentality behind it because mm -hmm. it's like because it worked one time it doesn't mean she is not if particularly from the shot that you saw from the flashback, she is not in good health. Yeah. So it's like, it's so what they're feeding her or what they're putting back into literally back into the soil as if she's, you know, the spirit of Gaia and stuff like that is, you know, it's, it, it's helping them sort of continue to exist, but it's killing the land. Yeah. Which in, then in turn starts to kill them. <laughs> so it's, it starts off, one way and slowly becomes extremely bloody gory violent like very tough, very tough. the working title must have been there will be blood but it was already <laughs> taken it's like I, I i john and i spoke briefly i'm like what was the blood budget <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Yeah. So, um, I mean, what would you say overall, Mike? What were, what were your overall thoughts? I, I, I actually really, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's, it's, um, it, you know, uh, it's, it's, I don't know if I would necessarily just stamp it like a, a horror film. There are obviously uh, sort of terrifying things about it, sure. but this is a film with, you know, that has more to say than meets the eye, which uh, I, to be honest, I was not expecting that from this. Yeah. And uh, I yeah, guess at this sure. point with, the, yeah, I guess at this point with Gareth Evans, maybe we should have, uh, you know, he's still, you know, he's still sort of uh, coming up in the ranks. So it's, uh, we don't have as deep um, a catalog to sort of refer back to with him, but I, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, for sure. He's, I mean, he is on some of these short lists for like some dark comic book stuff now. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how his career goes, but I, I think, um, yeah, definitely surprised me because, you know, you're used to one thing from him at this point in his career. So I was really happy about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I did watch a lot of it kind of through my fingers, to be honest. Like some of those scenes are really, really tough. Like I am not a fan of torture porn and it does get into that territory a little bit. Um, but I think the material is, um, since it starts off from character and, um, you know, there's more going on, as you alluded to, I, I give it, I give it a, a good, I thought it was, it was good. Would I want to watch it like a lot? Probably not, but it definitely has really memorable, grimy, violent, some very interesting uh, imagery going on. Um, this is always this is always the knock on Christopher Nolan. It's hard to follow the action of his fight scenes. Uh, but like Gareth Evans, he knows he knows how to film an action of a fight scene. So you are following it without any sort of confusion. Well, there we go. The apostle. I think anyone that um, liked Unearth will definitely be able to follow Apostle because you think about the fact that it's trying to say something environmental um, and certainly shows some consequences to the way, you know, you're, you're treating the land. I think that's, that's a very, I think that's a, a very clear message, uh, Mike, as you pointed out. So I certainly give it a good and even what I was around for, I was watching through my fingers. Uh, <laughs> Doing a little you were just bit getting of work. warmed up. They were just getting warmed up for you, Erica. They were, and I was, <laughs> I was, I was doing a little bit of work on my laptop. So looking down when things started to get a little bit bloody, um, and I unfortunately, fortunately, I had to run off to a meeting when uh, things started to get real creepy. Um, it's all good. But yeah, I, when they I put was curious on if you would be able to finish it. <laughs> well, it uh, it was this it was this morning at like eight o'clock a.m. So good stuff. Yeah. To the day, Fall, <laughs> falling asleep was not an excuse. <laughs> Going to a meeting was my excuse this time. <laughs> All good. All right, so that's Apostle. It's on Netflix. Yes. Check it out if you have the Check stomach for it. it. Check it out if you got the stomach if for you it. Got the guts. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, that's been our episode. 
thank you to our guest, Tony Gray. Next week, playwright, author, and screenwriter Mark Steensland joins us to discuss his career and our all-time favorite scary movies just in time for election week. Make sure you follow the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain.